Hey, it's the Vince in the Bay podcast. I'm Vince, and this episode is dedicated to my annual pilgrimage to the DEF CON Hacker Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. DEF CON 24 was held once again at Bally's in Paris this year, and of course featured over 9,000 of the world's most elite hacksaws convening to indulge in various forms of debauchery. This year, DEF CON featured its usual cavalcade of workshops, contests, talks, panel discussions, villages, and cons within the con. And also a lot of drunk hackers. As always, the four-day conference went by way too fast. It's physically and virtually impossible to take everything in at that conference. So this year, I decided to catch a few talks and then just sort of play it by ear. And I was lucky to catch up with a few outstanding individuals who you will hear from. This year, the DNC email leak by alleged Russian hackers had me uh, very obsessed with the topic of attribution. If you've listened to my prior couple of episodes of the podcast, attribution has been a theme. Uh, Lucky for me, this year, Jake Coons, CISO of Risk-Based Security, presented a talk on attribution, and he entitled his talk, Cyber, Whodunit? Attribution Analysis Through Arrest History. Jake uses research and analysis of arrest data to profile cyber criminals, and I caught up with Jake just before... He went on stage to give his talk, and he shared his thoughts on attribution, cyber espionage, the DNC leaks, and other stuff. I'm now joined by Jake Kuntz, CISO of Risk-Based Security. So your talk is entitled Cyber, Whodunit, Attribution Analysis Through Arrest History. Yeah, I've been in the industry for quite some time, started off doing a lot of vulnerability intelligence and then tracking data breaches. And so over the years, we've been tracking all these breaches. And the question we get all the time is, who is behind it? What's the motivation? What's going on? And, you know, just over the last couple of years, starting with the Sony breach, really, and at the end of 2014, it really highlighted the arguments about why attribution in the cyber world is hard. Not everyone believes that. There are some firms and people out there that think cyber attribution is easy and they knock it out of the park now. But there's always some sort of debates about who's done it, what were the reasons, etc. And so we decided that while we're not going to be doing forensics work and reversing malware and those sorts of things, we're pretty good data folks. We've always been good at collecting data. Why don't we start to collect data on cyber crime and arrests, tag some metadata to it, And then that way we can actually get a different view of attribution through sort of a different lens. So obviously there's some bias with arrest data versus sort of maybe real world data, but it starts to give you some other perspective of potentially who is behind these types of attacks. United States arrest data is is probably fairly easy to obtain. I know you've done research on data from other countries. How was that process, gathering that information, and how how were you able to vet that information? Because, you know, a data set you get out of uh, North Korea, if you can get one, probably dubious at best. So what was the process with that? Great question. And, and the reality is, with any data projects we've done before, you have to start somewhere, right? The data scientists and the data metrics nerds will get on you about sort of needing pure, perfect data. If it's being reported incorrectly, or there's something off the wall, or something censored, or those sorts of things, you know, we're only able to get what we're able to get. So it is an absolute pure ploy. And again, in a disclosure about the data, it's based on what is reported about these cyber crimes and, and these arrests. But believe it or not, there are other countries that are, that are going down this path and, and there is information that comes out and we track that when we can find it. You did mention the, uh, the Sony hack in North Korea. That's one of the, up until now with the DNC hacks, that was sort of the big attribution case that was debated for a long time. What was the ultimate conclusion with that and how long did it take for law enforcement all to agree 
And and we and I should note it's there's been a bazillion Sony hacks. We're talking about the Sony Pictures hack of their internal emails. Exactly. The Sony Pictures one, which the you know, the interview and all that, that was December twenty fourteen time frame when that was happening. And quite quickly when it when it came out, then we started to see two camps. One camp was saying, Hey, this is North Korea. The other camp was saying, No, 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 this is an insider and or not North Korea, right? And so the debates went on for quite some time. In fact, you know, a live debate between Mark Rogers and Dimitri um, from CrowdStrike. Is it um, a potential false flag? Could it be spoofed? Is it hard evidence or is it flimsy? So this went on for quite some time, but the FBI did come out saying that 100% attribution to North Korea. And so that once the government did that, you know, it started to silence things. While some of the other folks on the other camp still said, even though the FBI said it, we don't necessarily believe it and we have yet to see evidence, you know, that's when things started to settle down. And so then January uh, 2015 is when we started to see actions being taken, like sanctions and other, other things like that. So at that point in time, it sort of was, it's North Korea and everyone else that doesn't agree just needs to get on board. It's North Korea. Is there anything left to sanction on North Korea, they just introduced new sanctions that they're going to sanction anyone that uh, if they uh, abed or help any sort of cyber stuff. So there's more coming out here. Uh, you brought up, uh, you mentioned CrowdStrike and Dimitri, and of course, uh, the new big attribution debate is about the source of the leaked DNC emails that surfaced recently. CrowdStrike has attributed it to a Russian intelligence service. Um, what do you, what's your take? So when you think back to the Sony Pictures one, there was a lot more debates and people coming out on either sides. So far with the DNC hack, the ducks are getting in the row and everyone's sort of saying it, it is Russia, even though the person allegedly behind it claimed to be Goofuser 2.0 and they're Romanian. And there's been all these sort of things that is leading to, yeah, not so much. It just seems like a Russian action. I see this one as even a bit more unique as we're starting to see potential hackback scenarios uh, on Russia. We've also now started to see people saying that Donald Trump's behind it all. So now not only do we have attribution of who did it, it's, well, who's pulling the strings to get it done? So no matter what it is, there's going to be another one that comes out, and we're always constantly trying to figure out who did it, what were their motivations, uh, and what, did, what did they do? And, and I don't care what camp you're on. Uh, if you think we're awesome at it and everything's perfect versus you think it's awful, it's clear that as an industry, we need to work getting better at this to make sure that we, we're all on board and able to sort of get that attribution right. Human nature wants to know who's behind things and why. And so I think uh, it's very pressworthy when you can come out and say, we know who did it. And if you know who did it, you know, knowledge is power. Attribution is power these days. And so uh, I'd like to see more security companies working together on this instead of coming out one off. Um, But I don't think we're going to see security companies that stop saying this. While in some cases there's no uh, real reason or there's no sort of reward for them saying it because they only get themselves in trouble. Um, Some are using it as press opportunities. So I think we're going to see more of it. You know, as a, a data guy, we're staying out of this. We don't have a horse in this race. We just try to document what's going on. My talk here today really is going through the process of what happened. Why is this important? What are we seeing? And what's the profile of a hacker from an arrest profile, right? And I shared with you right now, it looks to be a male between 18 and 35, around 27 years old. Believe it or not, located in the USA because of, again, rest data that we're, we're finding and hacking, most likely active since 2000. So we're starting to see a profile through the, the crime area. But then we also start to see things like, what's the longest jail sentence? What's the average jail sentence? What are fines looking like? Are there certain judges that are harsh? Are there laws overreaching? All these sorts of things that can help, maybe not just sort of the, that attribution aspect to understand the legal process and what's going on and those sorts of things. Oh, and I want to I thank you for risk-based security putting out that attribution bingo card. I love that. Whose idea was that? Uh, that was myself and Lee Johnstone. Big ups to you and Lee. Uh, good luck on your talk today. And if uh, people want to stalk you on Twitter or the internet, how can they do so? Yeah, on Twitter, it's at Jay Coons, J-K-O-U-N-S, or you can go to riskbasedsecurity.com, follow our uh, news. We've got all sorts of stuff about, you know, breaches and all sorts of stuff. So join us there. All right. Thank you so much, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. What I love about DEF CON is you never know who you're going to run into. And of course, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. In my case, this year, it was a good thing. 
on day one, I managed to hook up an interview with cybersecurity legend John McAfee. As I was hanging out in the press room waiting to meet up with Mr. McAfee, I ran into my favorite motherboard tech writer, Lorenzo. And we chopped it up about the DNC leaks, Guccifer 2.0, or Guccifer 2.0, depending on how you, how you go with that. Oh, and of course, the joys of attribution. Vince in the Bay here at DEF CON 24. I am hanging out in the press room and uh, waiting for the arrival of John McAfee, who I'm hoping to get some quotes from. And I ran into somebody I know from the internet and now know in real life, IRL. It's Lorenzo Franceschi Bicuri. Did I get that right? Yeah, pretty much. Lorenzo, what brings you to uh, DEF CON this year? It's a good question. Uh, I guess uh, habit at this point. Um, I've been here for four years. This is my fourth time. And it's always good to like check out some talks and presentation, learn some new stuff. But mostly for me, I think I learned this, the best thing is to just hang out with people and you know just like we're doing now, talking and putting a face to people that you usually interact on Twitter or chat. And you, of course, are a tech writer with Motherboard. What are some of the things that you've covered recently that have really piqued your interest? The, the biggest story for me in the last few months was definitely the DNC hack. And when that came out, I. I remember like thinking, well, you know, this is espionage, meh. Okay, yeah, it's a big story, but like not that surprising. What made it interesting for me was the next day or two days later when this guy called Guccifer2 came out of the woods and said, hey guys, like you're all wrong. Uh, this was not Russia. CrowdStrike sucks. Fuck CrowdStrike. It was me. I'm a lone hacker. Ha ha ha. And and he started like dumping documents and that was like well like if this is really Russia that's weird like you know if you're you know when the NSA pops machines all over the world they don't do they don't they don't like leak the documents afterwards so that was like that was an espionage it was just something different and as far as we know nobody's done it before and it brings up this whole topic of attribution we know that one of these APTs was in place for almost a year. So that means potentially Guccifer 2.0 and dozens of other people, uh, rogue actors, state actors, and or otherwise could have been in there. And I totally agree with you. Why would the Russian intelligence release something like this? I don't think the U.S. government will ever come out and say this is Russia, even if they know it is Russia. I don't know if they do, but even if they do... I think they, they will never come out. You know, this is not North Korea. You can come out and say and point the finger at North Korea because there's nothing to lose. You know, you have zero international relationships with them. You have no, you have literally zero to lose. And actually, like, you might actually have some something to gain by, you know, imposing them more sanctions, making them look even worse. Whereas here, Russia, yes, it's kind of an... I don't even, I don't think, I don't even think the word enemy applies to Russia. It's an adversary it's like someone who have you have an adversarial relationship with but it's still a big country with a lot of allies and unless you're you know 120 percent sure there it's them and you know what to do with you know with this i guess it's pointless to really point the finger yeah there's no smoking gun and like attribution is such an imperfect art and most of the time it's based on a lot of it's based on some evidence that then leads to you know assumptions that lead to like more assumptions and i do believe though that all the circumstantial evidence and all the signs point to the fact that this gucci for two persona is part of the same group that uh, broke into the dnc and it's mostly because he came out like the his timing was too too perfect you know he came out right after the the news broke and also there's other weird things like you know his choice of a name you know, like, why, if you're claiming to be a lone hacker that's super cool, that broke into DNC, why would you choose a name that already exists? Why would you mimic an, another hacker's persona? You know, when this happens, usually it's like hackers choose unique names because they want to, you know, they want to brag. They want to be known. And if you choose, like, a name that already exists, that's the best way to be forgettable. So that's weird. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't prove it. Again, we have no smoking gun. But I think that it's... 
At least I believe that Gucci Fer 2 was just an attempt by the Russian intelligence to confuse everyone, throw some smoke up, and basically, like, you know, deceive and, and confuse us all. So you do think it's Russian intelligence? I do think, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's FSB, I don't know if it's GRU, or I don't know if like it's someone that was working for them. You know, I mean, the Russian space is so weird. Like, you have cyber criminals that work for the government part-time. So, like, you know, it's not like the NSA that you, you know that the TIO people <laughs> don't do on the side cybercrime. At least, I hope so. At least that we know of. Yeah. And, and if I can add something, like, you know, we've seen this before. Like, last year, the FBI had a presentation of Black Hat, a really good presentation of Black Hat on um, Game Over Zeus. The presentation was really good, and it was like an overview of the whole operation, which most, more or less we knew about. But they did reveal a detail that nobody knew had known before, which was that Bogachev, which is this fugitive cybercrime kingpin in Russia, uh, while he was doing all these activities of like ransomware and botnets and making money online, he was also popping machines and boxes on behalf, presumably of the of the Russian government. So like he had hacked like diplomatic targets, uh, NGOs, so people that he would not be interested in just to make money. So this is this was like I think probably the biggest example of like these cyber criminals might be working at times for the Russian government you have sort of a, an equivalent in real life you know look at the Ukraine uh, the Crimea incident uh, from a couple of years ago now those the troops that came in they're Russians but they're not they're not wearing uniforms you know eventually we find out that they were like basically Russian military men undercover but even at the beginning of when we were it was unclear from an international law perspective, it was clearly uh, an operation that was tolerated by Russia. And so, like, people were arguing this should be considered an invasion. It, did, it eventually did not, was, you know, the Ukrainian government decided not to consider it that way, but I think a lot of, like, academics and policy people uh, agreed that, that it was. You mentioned Ukraine. That's who I want to attribute this to. Who's benefiting from all this? Russia? No, they're getting bad press out of this. Trump? No, he's getting bad press out of this. The DNC has been wanting to get rid of Debbie Wasserman Schultz for a long time. So this was probably, I'm not saying this was staged, I'm saying this was a unique opportunity for them to act on that and having a a reason to fire her. I think it was Ukrainian hackers... Because we know that Ukraine is still unstable, still at odds with Russia, and um, the Clinton administration helps the Ukrainians because she's a little more hawkish than Obama. So, yeah, maybe these were Russian-speaking hackers who happen to be Ukrainian. Maybe they're working for the Ukrainian government. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just rogue patriot hackers. But who knows? It could be the Turks. It could be the Israelis. It could be whoever. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. Ultimately, I don't think this hurts the DNC or Clinton. It just hurts a few individuals. But WikiLeaks says they have more. Can you speculate what else they could possibly release? It's hard to tell. I mean, to be honest, what they released so far wasn't even, it wasn't that interesting. It was just those emails like sort of showing that the DNC was pro-Hillary were... Not that 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 was much of a shock, though. It's pretty obvious who the DNC wanted from the beginning. So, yeah, I don't know what what else they have. Like, they might have something else, but I wouldn't hold my breath. I mean, who knows? Maybe they will time it more closely to the elections. I I think it's going to be, like, kind of, like, non-consequential stuff. Yeah, I agree. The only thing I saw in those emails was just more evidence of how crooked politics are and how dirty it can be. It was just classic espionage, you know. The DNC is a, a target for espionage, and it doesn't matter who they, you know, who they support or not support in the election. Um, how did you get into writing about information security? I've never like I was never a hacker or like a computer science guy. Although I did did some computer science early on, but I always liked the hacker world. I was a nerd when you know I grew up with computers, and then I got into this whole hacking world. Because of WikiLeaks, this was when the collateral murder video, uh, when uh, uh, Wired did all those stories about Chelsea Manning and uh, Adrian Lamo, 
and then that was also like um, anonymous got really big and I sort of like got into it and then when I got into journalism that was what I cared about and I started writing about it thank you so much Lorenzo Lorenzo from Motherboard if people want to stalk you on Twitter how can they go about doing that if you want to do it it's uh, at Lorenzo FB at Lorenzo FB right on thanks thanks man MGT, a new cybersecurity firm, ticker symbol MGT, recently named antivirus pioneer John McAfee as their CEO. And both Mr. McAfee and his newly appointed CTO, who goes by the handle Aja, were in Las Vegas to attend DEF CON and promote their new security venture. I first spoke with Aisha, the new CTO at MGT. He discussed how his decentralized file sharing application named DemonSaw will be serving as the backbone to one of MGT's featured security products. And I'm now joined by Aisha from DemonSaw. He's a programmer and CTO who's here to promote a new venture that he's teamed up with John McAfee on called MGT. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you very much for having me. Give us a little backstory on who you are and how you got to where you are now. Okay. Um, well, I uh, got an undergraduate in Spanish, and then I realized that I love programming. I realized the, the aspects of language I loved was actually the, uh, the, the syntax and the semantics and the grammar, and not so much the vocabulary. So I taught myself C programming when I was 21, 22, then I went back, got my master's in computer science, joined American Express, eventually became their security portfolio architect, so the architect in charge of all their, of their security, intranet and internet. And then from there, I got a little bored, decided to go into game programming. Actually joined Activision first, did a couple Guitar Heroes, and then I went to Rockstar Games and made Max Payne 3 and Grand Theft Auto 5. I was thinking about cybersecurity, and I was thinking about file sharing and secure chat and uh, accessing files remotely. And uh, I realized there was really no good secure solution that allowed individuals just to get access to their stuff or communicate with the people they love or, or synchronize their files. And, and I was looking at the landscape and everything was moving to the cloud. And I realized the security implications and the issues with the cloud and the costliness of the cloud and, and how it really wasn't consumer friendly. And I thought, I bet I can build something better. And so I tinkered around for about a year I built the first version of Demon Saw. I proposed to talk to DEF CON. They loved it. They accepted me. I spoke on it two years ago, and then a year went by. I uh, put together 2.0. I launched Demon Saw 2.0 last year. I met John McAfee. John said, EJ, you're brilliant. What you've built is amazing. I've got to work with you. Let's find a way. So a few months went by, and John got appointed to the, uh, the CEO of MGT. And he called me up and said, EJ, will you be my CTO? And I thought about it for all of like uh, seven milliseconds. And I said, you know, it'd be an honor, John. We work really well together. We have an aligned vision on, on personal liberties and freedom and privacy and, and rights. And I'd be glad to help you in this new venture. Let's, let's go conquer cybersecurity. Let's go create something beautiful. And let's give the community something that will set them free. A lot of these security firms are providing services. What they'll do is they'll say, yeah, we have a variety of products that we're experts or pseudo-experts in, and, and we're willing to come help you secure your company by selling you our services or selling you a support contract and helping you install the software and even helping license it for you. So a lot of them are resales of technology and providing services. What MGT is all about is empowering the individual. We believe that it's in our best interest and society's best interest that we remove the middleman from the equation, the companies, the governments, the service layers, the drop boxes, the clouds. I honestly believe that every person in this world is capable enough and intelligent enough, given the right software and hardware and platforms and ease of use and UI and UX to protect themselves. MGT is building those technologies right now. It's a different paradigm. It's a different strategy. It's a different approach. When we're talking about protecting corporations, we're talking about protecting the people that make up the corporations, the executives, the shareholders, the board members, the people who use the products. But we're also talking about all the data that's been collected. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what Demonsaw is exactly? The easiest way to probably describe Demonsaw, I can tell you that it's a secure and anonymous 
sharing platform. So you can share files, you can uh, securely communicate, you can message people, but what it really is, is it's both a private cloud and a private VPN. And so when you think about it in the cloud and the VPN aspects, Demonsaw allows you to connect to whomever you want, share information, share files, and communicate totally securely with you controlling all the crypto in a decentralized fashion without peer-to-peer. Some people will say, that's not true, that's not possible. Absolutely. The internet is based on a decentralized model that is not peer-to-peer. If you go down to the lower layers of the OSI stack, to the physical layer and the link layer, all of those are routers that route traffic in a decentralized and stateless way. That's how Demonsolve was built. Demonsolve was built at the application layer to mimic the lower OSI stack layers. So you have a collection of routers, and all routers do are blindly forward traffic. Inside of that information are layers and layers of, of encrypted data that you and I control in groups. So we can set up in a Starbucks, connect to a public Wi-Fi, totally insecure network, and I could share my entire portfolio of top secret documents to you over a Starbucks Wi-Fi with Demonsaw without a care in the world. Now, that's an extreme analogy, and obviously, but that, that just shows the amount of control over the crypto that you and I have in a totally insecure network without peer-to-peer. And you wouldn't know my IP and I wouldn't know yours. If you want to share cat pics, you want to share pictures of your, your mother and father, then that's one layer of security. If you want to share top secret documents with a coworker, uh, that's another. Businesses have the same needs for privacy, uh, if not greater than individuals. Why? Businesses have their own secrets as the corporate entities, but they also protect the secrets of others. So they have the privacy aspect from two angles. So they store the information on the cloud. The cloud gets hacked. Now they have been violated from a corporate and a consumer trust standpoint. In the past, 20, 30 years ago, what businesses did is they hosted it all internally. They built up big server racks and server farms, and they paid IT guys, and that was very expensive. The cloud came by the last 10 years or so and said, hey, trust us, and we'll charge you a fraction of what you're paying now. It looked great, but the reality is that just collected a lot of disparate data and shoved it in one place and said, hey, guys, come hack us. Taking all of our data and putting it in 10 or 20 places is, is not a secure method. In fact, you want to avoid points of failure and not increase them. MGT through Clear Skies, which is the enterprise version of Demonsaw, it's a different focus. It's going to have options for companies that need compliance reporting. So it has enterprise capabilities that Demonsaw is never going to have because the demographics in the market are different. But the technology underneath is all the same. UIs are cheap and fast and easy. The underlying technology is the hard part to create. Aisha, he is the new CTO of MGT. Oh, and Aisha, if people want to stalk you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? If you want to reach out to me, my handle is demon underscore saw. Aisha, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your DEF CON 24. Thank you, sir. Now, if you listened really closely there, you probably heard a knock at the door as Aisha and I were finishing up the interview. The knock at the door was from new MGT CEO, John McAfee, who I sat down to speak with next. Vince here at DEFCON 24. I'm with uh, John McAfee, who is now the CEO and chairman of the board of MGT, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. John, uh, what brings you to DEF CON this year? Uh, I, I try to come every year. Uh, DEF CON has uh, the greatest uh, uh, hacking talent, which translates into uh, cybersecurity talent uh, on the planet. We, I don't think anyone could deny that. Um, and I am constantly on, on, on the search for, for talent, and um, serious talent. There, there's lots of talent out there, but there's a, the kind of talent that might, might use it for their own purposes. There, there's the kind of talent that doesn't want to focus. So I, I'm looking for that rare person that literally lives and breathes programming, uh, hacking, cybersecurity, and technology, and, and, and there are many of them here. So it sounds like you're kind of on a, a, a recruiting mission. My whole life is a recruiting mission. It, ha- it always has been. And, and sometimes recruitment is a, a three- or four-year process for me. It's, it's making a relationship with uh, uh, a couple of uh, young people who have a great idea. 
um, giving them advice, giving them whatever support that I can at the time, uh, and, and, and watching it grow or, or not grow. And anyone in the VC community knows that, that 90% uh, wither. There, there are many means of, of creating a public entity rather than start doing a startup and going public. One might be uh, taking an existing public company that's stagnant uh, and simply uh, removing the dead limbs and changing its focus into what you would do if you were a startup. And that's exactly what MGT is. That's good. That's good. You bypass the part you hate, which is the IPL. Absolutely. That's, that is the worst process in the world. The roadshow. I mean, it's, it's like it's worse than being a, a rock star that has no fans. All right. So you're constantly on the road. You're constantly uh, you have to be at attention um, and you're doing the same thing over and over and over in, in Europe and Australia. And, and, and so, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not up for that. It seems like now uh, Wall Street has become accustomed and comfortable with cybersecurity as an industry and as an investment. And there's a lot of big players, a lot of them publicly traded. What is going to set MGT apart from, say, Barracuda Networks or uh, Palo Alto Networks or uh, FireEye? The thing I think that sets us apart more than anything else is that, that I created the cybersecurity industry back in 1987 with the first uh, globally accepted antivirus product. That was the beginning. Uh, that set the paradigm for cybersecurity. And that paradigm is, basically, we look for malicious things, malicious code, malicious you know, activities, uh, the things that, that should not be there. Um, the problem is the world has changed so rapidly, and our communication systems have, have become uh, so instantaneous that by the time malicious activity is discovered, much as with the Office of Personnel Management within our government, two years have passed and everything has already been stolen. So, and, and 10 years ago, I, I kept saying that model, the current paradigm of cybersecurity is dead and we need a new one. We can't wait anymore. You, you can't wait a day to find out that some hacker's in your system. What we're doing, like on the corporate enterprise side, and, and I can talk about this product because we have announced it, is, is a product called Sentinel. And what Sentinel does is it, it's a totally new paradigm. Uh, it's not looking for anything that's actually moving around and, and changing and, and, and shouldn't be there. It's looking for the first entry of a packet that should not be in, this, in, in your network. And, and within milliseconds of that happening, a, 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 a information is sent to our main server, which analyzes it and says, yes, this is truly a potential hacker, and therefore we will call, or if, if, you know, we, if you give us the contact numbers that you want us to send in, in messages to, or an email if you prefer, uh, and within 10 seconds, that person in, in, who should be in charge, it could be three or four people for monitoring the network, will be told on port XYZ, port 80, whatever, uh, you have uh, a, a, an anomalous uh, event which should not be here in the system. Now, within 10 seconds, you know I've got a hacker or something. It might actually be uh, a Google bot that's simply trying to index your system. Well, good God, if a Google bot can get in, then so can a hacker because you should, Google bots should not be getting through your firewall. Now, why are firewalls so problematic? Because the Internet of Things is in the corporation now. So that what uh, on, on uh, the average corporate intranet, which may have had 50 devices on it 10 years ago, now may have 1,000 or 2,000. And one of them may be a refrigerator. Seriously. And so the people who are configuring firewalls, can you imagine the nightmare? Okay, I've got to be a refrigeration uh, specialist as well as a supercomputer. No, we, we, can't, we can't be everything. And so, obviously, our configurations are always imperfect. We do the best we can, and we then hope for the best. As we fix them, we fix them only because we find out there has been a problem. Good God, someone stole our, our, our customer data. Well, then, well, how they get in, we fix it. What, we can't go that way. We can't continue. With Sentinel, within 10 seconds, we tell you, hey, someone's coming in here, shouldn't be in here. 
you can then go in and fix it before the hacker can do anything. I mean, hackers just don't suddenly decide to hack somebody and 10 seconds later have your data. They spend weeks searching for ways to get in. After they're in, they spend weeks searching for where is the data that, that I'm looking for. So it, it works both ways. It makes it more difficult for the hacker, too. He may spend half a day trying to attack some device, which turns out to be a toaster. Okay, So, so it takes months. But during that time, things are happening. We don't know about it. I mean, it's too late then. At the first instant, this product sniffs it out and tells us. I know who could have really used Sentinel, the DNC. <laughs> That's actually something I'd like to get your take on. Uh, not maybe, maybe not necessarily the DNC, but just attribution in general. Okay, well, here, here's the problem with attribution. Um, if a hacker is clever enough to get into the DNC and is not clever enough to hide his tracks, then there's something wrong with that hacker. Because hiding your tracks is way easier than getting in and doing your business. So if, in fact, you say, I have traced this to the Russians, well, the Russian hacker is either an idiot or it's the Chinese putting blame on the Russians. So we have to get real with ourselves. We can no longer say that our technological forensic tools are useful because they can't be. It is common sense that whoever took 21 million records from the Office of Personnel Management over a two-year period without being detected can't be found. Because way before he did the hack, he decided how, or she, or, or they, decided how they were going to attribute it to the Chinese. And so everybody goes, oh my God, the Chinese did it. Well, unlikely, because it looks like they did. So... Our, our forensic tools are useless, and yet we still buy them, and still, we still pay people tons of money, and it's fraudulent. It is downright fraudulent. Over the course of your career and lifetime, what is the single biggest change you've seen in this area? The biggest change is, is always the one that's, that's the most difficult to perceive because it, it changes slowly. Um, computers used to be a special purpose tool used for a special purpose application like we get a wrench uh, to tighten a, a, a bolt. Um, today they are the controlling mechanisms of our lives from your smartphone which keeps your calendar, uh, your contacts and spies on you of course um, because that's what it's designed for. If you consider spying to be telling someone where you are what you're buying, uh, who your contacts are, because we give every application these permissions, then they are spy devices. Uh, from our smartphones to the internet, which glues the world together, um, to the uh, tractors uh, that are remotely controlled by farmers in Kansas. Last week, I was reminded of what that really means when we were stranded for two days due to the Southwest Airlines outage for just a part of a day of their computer system. So what it meant was, you can't make a reservation, well, our reservation system's down. You can't get a refund, well, our refund system is down. Uh, but I've got a ticket right here, unfortunately, that's just a piece of paper, it's a receipt, our computer actually does the work. Can you route me on another flight with another thing? No, we can't, because we can't prove that you had one with us. But wait, my ticket says, again, that's just a piece, so honestly, that was one tiny airline that 2,000 flights were canceled and stranded tens of thousands of people, including John and Janice and I right here, for two days. So I was thinking, what would happen if some malicious hackers really did want to bring down the world? It wouldn't take much. A uh, hundred people doing the same thing to a hundred different companies of that size would create a rolling chaos that I don't think we, would, we could recover from. We're looking at these hacks as inconveniences, or that was horrible, we lost $60 million with the, with the third largest Bitcoin uh, exchange four days ago. Okay, but people aren't thinking about, what about a coordinated, focused attack? We don't understand that what we have created is now our master, whereas when I started, it was our servant. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. If anybody listening is interested in learning more about MGT, where can they uh, go to find more information on the internet? 
Uh, you, well, a number of places. You can go to uh, Official McAfee on Twitter, uh, mgtci.com, uh, are, are two of the best places to start. Great. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your DEF CON. Thank you, sir. As I mentioned earlier, it's impossible to catch every event at DEF CON. And one competition I was really sorry to miss out on was the Social Engineering Capture the Flag competition. However, it turns out that the young woman who placed second this year happens to be from the Bay. I'm talking about Rachel Faber-Toback, who sat down with me recently to discuss social engineering and explain how the social engineering capture the flag competition works. I am here with Rachel Faber Toback. That's me. She is a senior community manager at Course Hero, and she also participated in this year's DEFCON 24 social engineering capture the flag and achieved second place. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Did you social engineer me to interview you? Yes, I did. I did that through Twitter. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm impressed. So I'm, I'm glad I have you here. I'm glad it worked. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. I feel like I've kind of been a social engineer my entire life. So it's not really social engineering as like a profession, but calling up you know, service providers and figuring out how can I get this cheaper or for free for this month. Um, that's probably one of my biggest hobbies, and I learned that from my parents, who are wonderful people. Um, I spend a lot of time at Course Hero. I absolutely love my job. What is Course Hero? It's an online learning platform, helping students and educators get the resources that they need to succeed. We have note sets, study guides, online experts and tutors, 24-7 flashcard services. Basically, every type of resource that you would need to be successful as an educator, as a student. And we're kind of democratizing education. Have you been to DEF CON before this year? Yeah. How, so, many, how many DEF CONs have you been at now? This previous one was my second. Okay. So second yeah. DEF CON yeah. and you participated in the social engineering capture the flag. Was this the first time doing uh, capture the flag? Yes. First time doing capture the flag. Why don't you give a brief definition of what social engineering is? Well, Chris had Nagy would want me to say that social engineering is anytime you are trying to get information out of another person that's either in their best interest or not for some type of gain. So it could be something you're trying to help them or you're not. The SECTF is super structured. It's actually awesome. So about two weeks before you do the social engineering capture the flag, you're given a target. And it's your job to find as many pieces of information on your target as possible using OSINT, open source information gathering. There are many flags and they're broken up into a lot of different categories, but you can generally find them by using Facebook, Google, Twitter, or like Multigo. Um, but you have to be using open source information gathering. No Lexus Nexus searches or <laughs> stuff like that. You can't like call somebody up and be like, Hey, you work at this company. Can you give me information about their pest control? You, you obviously can't call the company ahead of time and say, Hey, <laughs> I'm doing this challenge thing. <laughs> exactly. And I will split any earnings or whatever the hell I get with you. <laughs> if you just play along. Right. You can't do that. Cause that's kind of like social engineering, the social engineering captured the flag. Yeah. That's, that's frowned upon. Okay. <laughs> It should be a thing. It should be no. its own competition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so what, uh, let's get back to these flags. What, what, are the, what are these flags and how are they ranked? Are they, there's like a point system, right? There is, yeah. So any flag that you get during your report phase is half points of what you can get during your call phase. So the flags are things like, is IT support handled in-house or outsourced? Um, what operating system do they use? What day of the week or what day of the month do they get paid? Things like that. The points are pretty much rated based on how much you could compromise that company if you had that piece of information. So things like what type of badges do they have is eight points, whereas what do they use for delivering packages is three points. So it's stuff that could be used for an on-site pretext versus things that could be used for just kind of a logistical pretext or calling over the phone. 
But the biggest points is something you have to do over the phone, and that is getting them to go to a fake URL. So you're given a score based on how much information you were able to find before you got to DEF CON, and then you create your pretext and your scripts and everything that you want to do on the phone and all your phone numbers that you find. That's all in the report, and then you execute on it in a big glass box in front of like 350 people <laughs> at DEF CON. Yeah, I've seen that room. I've been in it before. It's always packed. It's insane. A very popular event at DEF CON. So what was your target? Can you say who your target was? I cannot tell you that at this time. Okay. Um, <laughs> was it a, a large corporation or was it a small business? or Large company. Large company. Yeah. So is, is, are most of the companies that are participating in this large companies? Yeah, they're all large companies. Okay. I can tell you the theme of this year. Okay. It was cybersecurity companies. Oh, even better. Yeah. So very, I would say one of the harder targets for DEF CON because they should be pretty locked down, but we had some pretty interesting results. Was anybody severely embarrassed? Yeah. Unfortunately, some people who worked at some of the companies that we were targeting were in the audience and they were embarrassed to say the least. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So what made you what what made you want to get into this? Like what attracted you to doing uh, the social engineering capture the flag? So at Course Hero, I'm pretty client facing. So I field requests, calls, things like that. And I was wondering, like, when somebody is calling me, they're asking me for this individual's birthday. Should I be giving that out? Or one time I even got asked for someone's social security number. And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, there's a lot of common sense things, but For me, it was really interesting in a client-facing role to think about how trained somebody is in their role. And I think a lot of people are trained to a certain extent, but the general public lacks an understanding of social engineering and how far somebody could get with that. They kind of see a hacker as somebody with a hoodie on in their basement, but it could actually be someone who's smiling at you, carrying a box, trying to get through your badge door. That's the thing that I think gets overlooked the most as far as... uh information security these days everything seems to be focused on the internet securing networks online from external attackers who have these exploit kits that can break into them or spear phishing attacks or whatever and send you to a malicious site but nobody thinks about an attacker just walking through the front door some of these companies spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on cybersecurity, yep. but they hire a kid for $12 an hour to watch the front door. These companies sometimes are so big <laughs> and their campuses are so huge and porous. It's so easy to blend in and look like you belong. Yeah. Why would you spend an outrageous amount of money on cybersecurity and skimp out on physical security when all it takes is one person to walk behind somebody into a door and then go to a machine, plug in a USB USB, and they're off. Or even better, pull out an ethernet cable from a VOIP phone and log into the network and wreak havoc. Or even easier, just call customer support and get them to go to a malicious URL. But I like walking in the door better. I <laughs> walking think in the door. Is I fun. think that's funner. <laughs> Tell me about this uh, socialengineer.org. Uh, social-engineer.org. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. They're the ones that put on the SE Village and the Capture of the Flag competition. What's their deal? Yeah. Chris Hadnagy is the founder of that. And I know Michelle, they work pretty hand in hand. Uh, they're amazing. Their biggest thing is security through education. People don't understand, you know, if you man a phone what do you need to not say and they have um phishing as a service sorry vishing as a service they will call and you said vishing voice elicitation ah yeah that's a new one so they will for me at least (laughs) they'll call your company and see how far they can get basically what we do in the glass box they do for your company to make sure you're safe with a competition like this there's got to be potential for something really really bad happening like maybe maybe somebody freaking out and calling the cops or something How like much, somebody in the audience yeah or or i don't know maybe somebody that you're the person you're on the phone with that you're social engineering you know maybe they're just like holy crap what's this this person's weird what are they saying i don't know them you know <laughs> i'm calling the cops there's got to be some sort of liability i'm sure right there is yeah there's definitely there's a lot of 
really important rules, and Chris has been amazing about setting those up so that every contestant feels safe in the box and they know their boundaries. Like even somebody will go so far as um, using a fear-based pretext, he'll shut down the call. Like even this year, he made that individual call the company back and apologize and say, hey, you didn't do anything wrong. You know, I'm a prankster. Don't worry about me. Or, you know, I had I had the wrong information. Don't worry about it. You're fine. They want you to leave that company feeling like they helped you. When I was doing my social engineering, they felt like they made my day better. Shouldn't it be the other way around? We don't want to scare anybody, but it's security through education. So we want to make sure that now we have this example, they compile a report. They'll let the companies know, hey, we found this information on you. Are you interested in reading your report? And we'll work with you to make sure that you're safer in the meantime. So at the end of the call, you don't reveal any, that, that no. you've done anything? No. Social-engineer.org. They'll go back later and make sure that that company has the information they need to be safer. But in the call space, if I were to come out and say, hey, I'm a social engineer and you just got owned, that's not a teaching moment. So we can go back in later and and have that teaching moment. What part of this did you enjoy the most? (laughs) I love the calls. Getting in that box is a really surreal experience. I mean, they put headphones on you. You, It's a soundproof box. You can't hear the audience. They have two giant boards on the side where they're projecting you inside of the glass box, showing are you sweating, how scared are you, things like that. My call was on a Saturday at 1.35 p.m., who is going to pick up the phone at 1.35 p.m.? So when I was doing my report, I went through and I found specific individuals that I think would pick up, and I specifically spoofed my number to be from somewhere that I thought they would pick up, like New York headquarters, Chicago headquarters, things like that. I also wanted to call the specific training facility that has a hotel associated with them because I knew they would have to pick up. People travel for work, Mm -hmm. you know. I found specific individuals who worked at the company, and then through Facebook dorking, I basically typed in their name and then the word phone, and then I was able to find posts in groups from like 2006. It'll be like, hey, I lost my phone. Can you put your phone number in here, and I'll give you a call? And for these 25 individuals who I were targeting at this company, they listed their number three, four, five times. Security researchers on Facebook. Yep, but from when they were in college or high school. So they don't even realize that they were compromising themselves back in the day. Great. Yeah. Now I have to go to Facebook <laughs> and look at my profile. I can do it for you right now. You want me to check? Yeah. Can you own me right now? Yeah. You want me to? Sure. Okay. Um, how, what, how are you listed on Facebook? You're the social engineer. You, you're, you're supposed to figure that All out. Right, I'll figure that out. I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to look at Vince in the Bay. All right. Let's see. Ooh. Found something from 2011. Holy crap. (laughs) Oh, look at you. You're talking to this person saying, I know you don't want your personal information out there, but can you give me your contact info on Facebook? I said that? Were you social engineering them? I don't know. Maybe I was, and I didn't even know it. I don't remember. You are safe, at least on Facebook. Thank God. (laughs) So you can't call anybody until you get to Las Vegas. Is that right? Correct. You cannot call anybody. So you can only do online research. Correct. And what and what did you say about physical research? Can you physically no. go to the company? Nope. Damn. <laughs> That's what I was that was gonna be my plan if I did it. No. Oh. You can't dumpster dive. You can't just try and walk behind somebody who's going into the building and, mm-hmm. and just listen. You can't do any of that. It's just all based on what you can obtain publicly. Exactly. Through legit channels. Yahoo answers. <laughs> Quora. Yeah, and fortunately, yep. but but fortunately, we live in an age where everybody is sort of self-compliant. Facebook has convinced everybody to want to share every intimate detail of their life and profile themselves. Obviously, their reason to profile is based purely on advertising, but mm-hmm. uh, to a social engineer, it's a resource for something completely different. If you could pass on some advice to folks who are listening who aren't really aware of some of the pitfalls of social engineering, what are some quick tips that you would give a listener just to keep them you know, on their toes while they're in their working environment or at home getting, yeah. getting a random phone call or email or whatever? Anything that you've put on the internet, on Yelp, on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, assume it's all public, regardless of your settings. And then any of that information that's out there, don't let anyone verify any need to know information about you based on pieces of information that are out there. Kind of come from a place of being skeptical. You can use a couple different ways to verify. Like if somebody gives me a call, I'll be like, yeah, shoot me an email and have somebody else give me a call. Let me see who else we got. Who knows this information about me and and wants to know more. And I'm probably still not going to tell you anything, but. Great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I have kind of a funny story for you. Yes, please share. So I decided to pretext as somebody who was pretty high up in my target company mm-hmm. so that I could call my second pretext. I wanted to call and then say I was working in their security department. So pretexting as being within the company builds a lot of trust really quick. This person that I was pretexting as, when I was done, I got off my call, I got outside of the box, it's time for Q&A, and somebody raises their hand and goes, that's my boss, that person that you pretended to be for 20 minutes in there. Ouch. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that was scary, but cool. Very cool. Yeah. Do you think you might have an advantage because you're a woman? That is another question that I got during the Q&A. And I think last three years, a woman won first place. And I think I, I totally blew it this year because I got second. <laughs> but a man did win first place this year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so men finally have something. Yeah. We can finally, we can finally <laughs> say that we have something over women. Finally. We, we finally made it. Have, have equality in mm-hmm. the social engineering universe. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> if you think about it just with inherent like gender bias, right? Mm-hmm. If a female's calling me and she's saying she's in IT, I'm going to be like, okay, cool. Like, I trust you. You're like on my side. That's cool. And if you're talking to a man, a man might not believe that the woman works in IT. So they, they might actually be a little bit more skeptical of that. But if a woman were to choose a pretext of something, maybe lower status, something that's like, hey, yeah, I work at the front desk, maybe more believable. Not saying men are bad. Just saying inherent gender bias exists. Oh, yeah. You can't deny (laughs) that. Besides Capture the Flag, how was DEF CON for you? It was awesome. I absolutely love DEF CON because I feel like you can be exactly who you want to be and everyone accepts you. I love being in SE Village. I pretty much spent my entire time there. This whole year at DEF CON, I was just sitting in the room taking notes. What type of pretext do they use? What do they say? What do they sound like? What's their tone? So I pretty much just hungered down this year. Well, congratulations on getting second place in DEFCON 24's social engineering capture the flag. What was your prize for getting second place? Kudos. <laughs> no, Kudos? Are you getting swag or anything? <laughs> I got a lot of swag, yeah. Chris and was... status, of course. <laughs> I got to go up on stage at the award ceremony at DEFCON, which was really cool. Um, so I got a cool glass trophy that had like a big human head in it, the social dash engineer logo in there. I got a bunch of like lock picking tools, a bunch of interesting stuff from DEF CON, like a card scraper thing. <laughs> Real, like uh, the ones that they, they, they put on ATM machines, skimmer or whatever? <laughs> I, don't, I think it was, yeah. The card skimmer? Yeah. That's awesome. I'm never going to use it though, so in case anyone's listening to this. Of course not. Of course not. It's, it's just, it's just memorabilia. sitting in my, in my closet. So how does it work for next year? I definitely want to sign up. And try it next year. How do I go about doing that? They'll put it out sometime in the next probably four months. It'll just be like a call for anyone who wants to apply. And then you have to create a video. Mine was basically like a fever dream produced by David Lynch. It was like really scary. They will look at your video, kind of determine your motives. Why are you there? Are you going to play by the rules? Are you excited about this? Will you back out at the last second? Then... They will give you your target if you get through. I think they had like a hundred some people apply and they chose 14 last year. It's pretty intense. So make your video good. That was extra points this year too. If you made them laugh, you got extra points, which was good. And then you'll get your target and then you go from there. I'm looking at the rules here. No use of pornography. <laughs> it cannot be used during the CTF in any form. That is true. All right. That just handicapped me right there. Yeah. You're definitely going to get disqualified then. Uh, no targeting information such as passwords. Um, Nothing that would compromise a person. Mm-hmm. We're really making sure that the company is the target here. The social engineer must only call the target company, not relatives or family. Then that's when you're in the booth. They've laid out the rules really well. I know they had a lot of lawyers check them out and make sure that none of us will get in trouble by being contestants. 
you cannot record big signs that flash that say no audio, oh, yeah. no recording of any kind, because it's um, in Nevada, you do have to have consent from the other party in order to record or else it's And the other tapping. party might be in a two-person consent state as well, Correct. like California. Yeah. I have uh, one last thing I want to Oh, go say. for it. I want people to know that if you want to jump in, especially if you're a woman and you feel like I need to know everything before I jump in, don't think like that. Just do it. You don't need a master's degree to social engineer someone. Just pick up the phone and do it when you're at DEF CON or when you're home, I guess. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think I think a lot of people are naturally social engineers and probably don't even realize it. Right. Thank you very much, Rachel Faber Toback. Thank you, Vince. For joining me. And if people want to contact you mm-hmm. on the internet, how can they uh, stalk you on Twitter and other various <laughs> platforms? Yeah. Twitter is my contact of choice at Rachel Toback. And that's Rachel T O B A C. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and hopefully, I will see you at DefCon twenty five yes, in Caesars, and in the social engineering competition. Yeah, I'll see you in the booth. Thank you, Rachel. Appreciate Thank you. it. If you've been to DEFCON, you know that every year there are unique badges issued to attendees. And these badges are part of a contest also. And a gentleman who goes by the handle LOST, and that's spelled one lowercase o five seven. It's leet speak. Although I don't know why he went with the lowercase o instead of just a zero i should have asked him that damn it anyway lost is in charge of the badge challenge every year and this year i got to speak with him as he was getting ready to present the uber badge which is a custom made badge awarded to the winner of the badge challenge so I'm here with uh, Lost, and he's in charge of the badge challenge. Uh, we're getting ready to wind down DEFCON 24 here, and he's going to hand out the Uber badge, which I see in front of me here. It's like a black skull with uh, animatronic eyeballs and LEDs that light up and move around and do stuff. Tell me about this badge and uh, what, it, what it represents for this uh, contest. So this year's Uber Badge was a, a group effort. The lion's share of the work is a, a special effects Hollywood guy. Uh, his name is Rick Gallison, and without him, this just wouldn't have been possible. I was also working uh, with Johnny Mac, so the three of us together, really Rick. But uh, so I called up, uh, I called up Rick. By the way, he's the guy who made the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park, and the same mechanism that's in the dinosaur that shakes and spits is in this badge. So he's the guy who created that. He also did like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles heads and the Dr. Octopus arms for the Spider-Man movie. So I called him up, and my original idea was to hang tentacles off the bottom and do kind of a Cthulhu-type thing um, because I thought it might be easier. I didn't think we could do a retraction in a badge that it would be too heavy. But in this one, the, the telescoping eye actually recoils into the, the uh, badge itself and then extends out, as you saw, and then retracts again. So... Yeah, I mean, it represents more man hours than I care to share and uh, is in just assembly time alone takes over 10 hours for a single badge to be uh, assembled. That's after you have all the parts and none of the parts of this are off the shelf. Every single part of this, every bracket is a custom designed piece with the exception of the servos. That's that's great. Uh, It paid off. It looks beautiful. I I love it. And whoever wins it is going to be stoked, I'm sure. And can you give me a real quick synopsis of what the badge challenge is for those who aren't familiar with it here at DEF CON? Sure. So I used to run a a much more difficult contest every year called the Mystery Challenge. When Joe Grant stopped doing the badges, uh, Jeff came to me and, due to the success of the Mystery Challenge, asked if he thought I could scale that for the badges for everybody at the conference. So the uh, badge challenge is kind of an extension and a shadow of the Mystery Challenge, but it's not anywhere near as difficult. It's designed to be accessible to everyone at the conference. So the puzzles, there are some some difficult parts, but most of them, with a little uh, uh, elbow grease, are easily solvable, like things in the program and on the lanyards and on the signs and on the floors and things like that. So, 
I have one of these blue, um, I guess it's a happy skull with yellow. I'm pretty sure this thing is self-aware. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't know. That's part of the secret. Um, yeah, when I re- initially got it, I thought it was more of a dev thing. So in the past, I've done that. Some people are like, oh, it's not a dev this year. Well, I've gone to the painstaking effort twice of building a badge that is basically a development environment, and not that many people were using it. So I decided to not do that this year because if you put all this effort into it and people aren't using it, I figure the people who are going to do that are going to do it anyway, and they're going to figure out a way to tack on and use the JTAG and pro reprogram it. And the ones that don't, well, it simplifies the design. It's much lighter. There's no components on the back So as, as a circuit board because a lot of people now are making electronic badges. It's kind of passe at this point. But uh, most people don't have the design experience, not of electronics, but of an electronic bare board that is designed to be handled and worn as a badge in a humid, sweaty environment, people touching it, swinging, hitting your clothes, having zippers. There's all kinds of problems that, that I've learned to deal with over the years of doing this. That uh, I dropped mine in my coffee. It still works. It's still, it's still uh, self-aware. Yeah, I, I, I'd watch it. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Lost. I'll let you go. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jake, Lorenzo, Aisha, John, Rachel, and Lost for taking the time to speak with me this year. Big ups to the organizers and staff for once again making DEF CON a magically delicious experience. The music you've heard in this podcast is courtesy of the DEFCON 24 soundtrack. Check out my blog. It's vincentthebay.com where you can see photos and video from DEFCON 24. And you'll also find each of the interviews from this podcast posted as individual audio files. Listen to past episodes by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can follow me on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. That's it. Ciao.